Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles together to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. Our text today, verses 1 through 8. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. We've been talking about heaven for several weeks now. We started in Colossians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul instructed Christians to set our affections, that is our minds and our hearts ought to be in heaven, even if our bodies are here on earth. Last week, we were escorted through an open door to the very throne room of heaven by the Apostle John in his second vision. There he saw God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, along with the heavenly angels and the redeemed from all time. Well, today we return to that heavenly vision of John's in the 21st chapter, where we have the most detail I expect in all of the Bible about what heaven is going to be like. Specifically, this particular time, chronologically, is what theologians call the eternal state. Now, we're sometimes a little bit vague as it relates to what happens to a Christian soul when he dies. We say that uh, we believe that our loved ones who know the Lord are in heaven today. In fact, we had a funeral here this week of one of the dearest ladies in our church, a widow woman. And in the message at her funeral service, I compared her to Dorcas of Acts chapter 9. He was a woman who was always serving other people. It broke the heart of the widow women when she was gone. I said in the message that we are confident that this woman is now in heaven. As I thought about that, there were likely unsaved people here. They likely had the question, what is the source of your confidence? Because most people we know don't have any confidence of what's going to happen when we die. Well, our confidence is in the word of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. It's not just Paul that believed that. Other than the Lord Jesus pronounced this truth in Luke 23 to the believing thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. And that followed on the heels of a parable that Jesus told about a rich man and Lazarus, both of whom died, and both had a conscious existence after they died. That is, we don't believe in soul sleep here. We believe at the moment of death, a Christian soul goes into the presence of the Lord, into what we call the intermediate state. It's called the intermediate state because it's the state between this life and what we're going to talk about today from Revelation 21, the eternal state. That is the state of life between the here and now and the everlasting. Now, while those departed souls are in heaven... There are some things that will take place here on earth, things like the rapture and the tribulation and the second coming and the resurrection of the living and dead and the battle of Armageddon and the dissolution of all the universe. Now, the chronology of those events that I just listed are the fodder of much discussion and debate among Christians. In fact, we are putting together a little conference right now on this subject. By the way, the subject is eschatology, the study of last things, all that the Bible has to say about the last things, and I hope you'll come to that conference. But for now, just listen to what our doctrinal statement, the Baptist Faith in 2000, 
Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says about eschatology. It says, God, in his own time and in his own way, will bring this world to an appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. And so we can differ a little bit about the chronology about some of these events, but if you believe that Christ is coming again personally and visibly and that he's going to judge every person that's ever lived, you can be a Baptist and you can be a member of this church. So this morning we're skipping over all of those events in the intermediate state and we're landing squarely in Revelation 21 to the events that happen just after the world melts away with fervent heat to what we call the eternal state. By the way, if you want to read the detail about how God destroys the universe, you can read it on your own time in Revelation chapter 20. Let's read now Revelation 21, 1 through 8. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. May the Lord add his blessing the reading and hearing of this, his word. Well, the first thing that we see about the eternal state is that there will be new heavens and a new earth. Again, verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Now, that should not surprise you if you know your Bible. In the Old Testament, Isaiah predicts this in Isaiah 65. He says in verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens... And a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. It was promised, of course, in the New Testament by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3. But the day of the Lord will be like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, after I read that passage two weeks ago, I said, why in the world would Christians be content with the glass baubles of this world? If we know that this world and everything in it, all the accumulated wealth, all the houses, land, and gold are one day going to melt away with fervent heat and be burned up and be rendered useless for all of eternity, why in the world would we invest our lives in things like that? Instead, the Bible cautions us and instructs us as Christians to lay up treasure where? In heaven. And so... He says there's coming a new heaven and a new earth. New not just in chronology, new follows the old, but new in kind. That is the new heaven and new earth that God creates is going to be fundamentally different than the one that we inhabit now. God is going to recreate the world and the atmosphere and outer space 
and make it fundamentally new. Well, what about this old heaven and old earth? That's the earth that was created in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And what did God say about his creation in Genesis 1.31? Behold, it is good. It was good. Nothing wrong with it. It's a perfect environment for man to live and have dominion over all of God's creatures. But of course, man violated God's one rule, one prohibition against eating of a particular tree. And because he did, sin entered the world. And God was good to his word when he said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And a curse passed upon all of humanity and indeed on the earth itself. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8 that all creation groans awaiting this day of regeneration. He's starting over, this time without sin, a place, he says, where righteousness dwells. That is, obedience is the order of the day. Now, this new earth that's going to create, be created in the future needs a home base, a capital city, as it were. And that's what we see in verse 2, the new Jerusalem. He says, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Holy city, New Jerusalem, we sing about. The celestial city, the four square city. Anything you want to say, it's talking about the New Jerusalem. Where they have 12 gates and streets are made of gold. This is the place that Jesus was referring to in the Gospel of John. When he said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you can be also. In my Father's house are many rooms or dwelling places. That is... For all who would believe, there is a home in this new Jerusalem. And then he compares this new Jerusalem as a bride coming down adorned for her husband. Well, as I was studying that passage this week, I was reminded my wedding anniversary is Tuesday. And on Tuesday, it'll be 19 years since I stood right at the foot of this altar. And the wedding music started and those doors opened and my wife, sitting here on the front row, came in in a white gown adorned in purity for her husband that we could begin our life together. This is the imagery that John has of all the redeemed from all time having a place adorned, made pure by the blood of Jesus where we will live forever and ever together. This is the new Jerusalem. This is the city that all of the believing faithful in both testaments have longed for. Hebrews 10, 8, for by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith he lived as an alien, that is a stranger in the land of promise, in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. If you remember Abraham, he was a nomad. He lived in tents. And when your time in a tent was over, you folded up and went to the next place. Well, the, the image is quite clear. We Christians don't belong in this world. If you ever get the feeling you don't belong here, it's because you don't belong here. We are strangers and pilgrims and aliens, and we're going to our true home, which is in heaven. And we live in tents. And some of our tents are getting a lot of wear and tear on them, aren't they? And one day we'll fold up the tent through death and then we will go to our true home which has deep foundations, which is immovable and whose builder and architect is the Lord. It's the Lord's city. 
And over the years working in ministry, I've dealt with a lot of architects and builders. And this facility is beautiful, isn't it? And we love coming here week by week. And our custodial crew does a great job keeping it up. Brother Scott has put a lot of time and effort in remodeling, making sure this building we steward well because it represents the Lord in this community. But I'm telling you, I'm looking forward to a city whose architect and builder is the Lord. This is the heavenly city. It's the new Jerusalem. Now, next week, we're going to see some very clear descriptions of that city, how big it is, how wide it is, how tall it is, what it looks like. So come back next week. But for now, let's look at the new relationship. This really is what John was heading for. Yes, our environment's going to change fundamentally, but our relationship with God is going to be different. Verse 3, he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Now, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, part of the curse that God meted out in Genesis 3 was that they were to be cast out of the Garden of Eden forever. Remember, he put a cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the entrance so that they could not reenter. No longer would they enjoy the face-to-face -face communion with the Creator as they once did when He came in the cool of the morning. And even in the Old Covenant, God described and prescribed the way His chosen people were to communicate and interact with Him through a system of priests and sacrifices, tabernacles and temples and veiled rooms. But even now in the New Covenant, when that Holy of holy, the veil has been torn from top to bottom and we're bid to come with boldness into the presence of the Lord. There still exists this gulf of separation, doesn't there? And though the Lord is in our hearts and in our minds, we are not with him face to face. But one day in this eternal state, we will be. He says the tabernacle of God is among men. Tabernacle was the place they met with God. In other words, we won't have to go to an address in heaven to worship because everywhere it will be the address of worship. The Bible says there'll be no need of a temple, no need of the sun even, because God himself will provide the light. Now, the tabernacle, this dwelling place, is among men. That's a key verse. It means that he is literally going to live among us. That's why we need glorified bodies, by the way. You remember in the Old Testament where Moses went up on the mountain to receive the covenant from the Lord and he wanted to see the Lord and the Lord said, no, you can't handle that. And so he put him in the cleft of the rock. And as the Lord and his glory passed by, Moses caught just a little hint of a glimpse. The scripture says, as it were, the hinder parts of God and he glowed for days. He had to wear a veil over his face. Can you imagine if we were in the very presence of God's full glory in these bodies, we would be evaporated on the spot. And so he's going to give us new bodies, glorified bodies, bodies fit for heaven and eternity, where we can be in his very presence. Praise God. Now finally we see the new reality of heaven. I think when we think about heaven, we have a hard time because all we know is the here and now. Jesus interacted with some Pharisees and they couldn't get past the here and now. Jesus kept talking about spiritual things and all they could think about was physical things. And Remember they tried to back Jesus into a theological corner with this question about this woman who was married a bunch of times. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? 
And Jesus didn't answer that silly question. He said, don't you know that in heaven will be as the angels? There's no marriage or given in marriage. That is, it's a fundamentally different existence in this life to come. And so he describes that existence. And he says, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now earlier in the chapter he said there will be no more sea. And for those of us who like going to the beach, we don't think that's a good thing. But in John's day, the sea was symbolic of everything evil and chaotic. The sea was to be feared. There was no way to explore its depths. Even when sailors sailed, they stayed within eyesight of the shore because the sea was everything unknown and chaotic. And so when he says there's no sea, I think he's talking about there will be no chaos. Everything will be orderly. It'll be exactly as the Lord intended. There will be water of some sort. He says it will come out of the throne, this spring of life. But no more sea, no more disorder. And he says, of course, no, no more tears. I get a question quite often in my office from people who've lost loved ones. And they'll say, can I truly enjoy heaven if some of my relatives and my friends are not there? And I can say unequivocally, yes. The Bible says there will be no remembrance of those things, no regrets, no tears of sorrow of, of any kind. And I grew up in country churches, and we used to have fifth Sunday singings. You know what that is? So you'd have preaching four weeks, and on the fifth Sunday we'd have gospel singings. And, and I can guarantee you every fifth Sunday someone was going to ask for this song about no tears in heaven. Remember it? No tears in heaven, no sorrows given, all will be glory in that land. There'll be no sadness, all will be gladness when we shall gather in that land. No tears in heaven, no mourning. No remembrance of regret. No pain of any sort. Raise your hand if you're hurting in some way right now. <laughs> Almost everybody over 12 is. <laughs> You've got a knee pain or a back pain or a headache. Uh, and it's every day, isn't it? And it's not just physical pain. It's emotional pain. The thought of your children who are hurting. It's, it's spiritual pain of separation from the Lord and and from your loved ones who've gone before, there'll be none of that in heaven. Why? Because all of the pain in this world ultimately is the result of the sin of Adam and Eve. When God created Eden, there was no pain there, I take it. There was no mourning, no regret. So everything we go through here that causes us pain in some way is tied to that first sin. And so I take that to mean if there's no Morning in heaven, there's no sin in heaven. And that's one of the things that's going to make heaven heaven, dear ones. No sin, no temptation even in heaven. You see, when we talk about our salvation here, we talk about it from three perspectives, don't we? We talk about it in the past tense, that there was a moment in our lives where God's Spirit convicted us of personal guilt and, and, and violation of God's law. And 
he called us and convicted us and we agreed with his assessment of us and we asked him to forgive us and he did and he saved us in his justification. He declared us as a judge not guilty. And then in the present tense, he is saving us. That is, he keeps on cleansing us from all unrighteousness, according to 1 John. And ultimately, what we long for is our glorification where we're free not only from the penalty and power of sin, but the very presence of sin. And that's what will make heaven heaven. But I must ask you, what about you, dear one? Are you going to heaven? Now, I started this series two weeks ago with a survey that I had read from Pew Research, which says that over 70% of Americans, even to this day, believe in a literal heaven. And almost every one of those people believe they're going there. Many fewer people believe in a literal hell, and even fewer believe they're going there. But according to the scripture that I just read, every person that has ever lived is going to spend eternity either in heaven or hell. What about you? Listen to verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. Now I take it that we live now in what we call the age of grace. That is, we have a window of opportunity open to us. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But there's coming a day when that age of grace will end and that window of opportunity will be closed tight. And that's just the point where he's talking about here. And he says, it's done. And then God speaks and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega, the final one. That is, he is all in one. He knows the end from the beginning. Beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. He says he, he's willing to give us life without cost. That's salvation by grace, isn't it? We don't go to heaven by doing good works. We don't go to heaven by impressing God with our credentials. We come before God humbly and contritely and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. And he counts that as righteousness. And the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us through faith. And he says, those kind of people go to heaven. And then he comes to verse 8 and a very frightening word, but. Which tells us there's another existence that's not heaven. He says, but for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It doesn't matter what the survey said. God says hell is real. And those that go there are those who do not receive Jesus by faith. He calls them the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Now you may be here today and, and you wipe your brow and say, I'm glad I'm none of those things. Oh no. Well, let's just start with uh, idolatry. We know the very first commandment is have no other gods before him, right? Second is likened to it. Don't make any graven images. And we say, well, I've never bowed down to Buddha. Idolatry is more than bowing down to an idol. Idolatry is believing things about God that aren't so. That's the essence of idolatry. And if you have believed and said things about God that are inconsistent with Scripture... You're an idolater. 
if you've put anything in your life before God at any time, you're an idolater. But let's go to one that's even a little more poignant. That is the last one, liars. No liar is going to heaven. Now, one of my favorite evangelistic techniques is called way of the master. And I like the way of the master because it uses the Old Testament law, specifically the Ten Commandments, to start conversations with people and to be used by the Holy Spirit to convict them of sins. And the conversation goes like this. You walk up to a person on the street and say, hey, friend, good to meet you. Can, can, can I talk to you about something important? Most people say yes. He says, um, do you think you're going to heaven when you die? And almost all people, over 70% statistically, will say, yes, I do. And then that gives you the opportunity to ask the question, well, what is that based on? Why do you think you'll go to heaven? And usually they'll say something like, because I'm a good person, try to be a good parent, pay my taxes. And then you can say, well, well let's do a little test according to God's word. Let's just, you've heard of the Ten Commandments, yes. But let's see if you've kept them all. And then he, he starts with lying, and he says, have you ever told a lie? Well, any person with any sort of scruples at all is probably going to have to say, yes, I've, I've told a lie. Even when I was a kid, I, I told a lie or two. And then you ask this question. What do you call a person who has told a lie? <laughs> a liar. Well, they're not going to want to say they're a liar, so they'll say, well, you know, I don't know what you call them. And finally, when you press them, they'll have to say, a liar. The Bible says, thou shalt not steal. Have you ever cheated a little bit on your taxes? Have you ever stolen a candy bar? Most people have to say yes. What do you call a person that steals? A thief. Jesus said, if you're a man, you look upon a woman to lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And most men will have to say, yeah, I'm, I've done that. And then you can say, well, so far you're admitted to being a lying, adulterous thief. So much to getting to heaven for being a good person, right? And then you can open the Bible and tell them that it's not through works, but through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that they can be saved. And friend, I'd say the same thing to anyone here today. We don't assume just because we're all singing and clapping about heaven that everyone's going there. Only those who bow their knee to Christ. What about you? Have you bowed your knee to the Lordship of Christ? Have you come to a place in your life where you know if I were to die today, I'd spend eternity in hell because I'm a sinner. I agree with God's assessment of me. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's at that point that the Holy Spirit of God can take you and transform you through faith where you just admit to God that you are a sinner and that you recognize your guilt and that your only hope is grace. Him giving the righteousness of Christ to you that you don't have. The Bible says at that point, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe if I were to ask you at the beginning of the service, are you going to heaven when you die? You might say, I don't know. You can know. Because it's not based on some algorithm of you being percentage points better than the average. It's not based on some bell curve of you having to outdo the rest of the class. It's based upon faith in Christ alone. And if you put your faith in Christ alone, you'll be saved and you'll spend eternity in heaven. Let's pray and thank the Lord for that truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for heaven. And it's heaven because that's where God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are. 
It's heaven because it will be free of sin. It's heaven because it's a fundamentally different existence than anything we know here. And Father, you don't give us everything we would like to know about heaven. You've given us everything we need to know. And Father, we know that it is exceedingly abundantly greater than anything here. So Lord, help us not to invest too heavily in this life. Help us to lay up treasure in heaven. Help us to keep our heart and mind's affection on heaven where Jesus is. Help us, Father, to share the good news gospel of how to go to heaven with everyone we know. Help us, Father, to live in the light of heaven's soon coming. And Father, we'll give you the glory for anything good you accomplish through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.